2: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream.
0: Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk,
2: comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time to go into
0: the old vault. Today, we're doing an episode on Lot's Wife and the idea of turning an animal into a pillar of salt. This episode originally published on August 20th, 2019. All right, let's dive right in.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff
1: Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, you know, I didn't think about this until just this moment, but this is another geomythology episode, isn't it?
1: It ultimately is, yeah. Uh, we are, of course, talking about uh, an often overlooked figure from uh, from the Old Testament and from uh, from from, uh, from Jewish myth and legend. Uh, we are going to be talking about Lot's wife. That's right. The story of Lot's wife is a traditional
0: Jewish story that comes from the Torah. It's from the book of Genesis chapter 19. So I guess we should explain the context of the story before we read the relevant passage. Yes. All right, so we're in the part of the book of Genesis after God has revealed himself to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish religion. And so Abraham now has a relationship with God, and we're learning about Abraham and, uh, and some of his relatives. And one of his relatives is his nephew, Lot.
1: That's right. So basically what happens is uh, Abraham catches wind. The three angels are about to smite the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah.
0: Yeah, the reasoning is that these cities are very bad and God doesn't like them and they're full of wicked people. But Abraham tries to reason with God. He says, now, wait a minute. Are you going to destroy all the
1: good people in these cities along with all the wicked people? Ah, so he begins to to, to wade into theologically murky waters, right? Right. Like Uh, if, if bad things must happen to the bad people, what about the good people in those cities? What should we do about them? Right. And he actually is successful in negotiating with God. Yeah, it, he argues him down, basically, because yeah. God at first it's like, OK, what if there are 50 people, 50 good people in the city? Would that be enough to spare the city? And God and, says, yes, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's OK. You make a good point. He's like. But then Abraham starts hedging, <laughs> right? He's like, he oh, wait, I don't know if I can find 50 good people. I mean, that's that's a lot. Right. But yeah, it begins talking him down. Well, what about 45? What about 40, et cetera? Ultimately brings it down to a mere 10 righteous individuals in the city. And, uh, and God agrees, okay, if you can find ten righteous people, I'll spare these cities. Right. And so then a couple of angels are sent to the
0: city, presumably, I guess, to like do some recon, to figure it out.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're dealing with, you know, this is the the Old Testament God um, whose powers are at once like more like dramatic and cataclysmic, mm-hmm. but also requires like foot soldiers to literally go to the town to conduct some surveillance, right. uh, a little recon. Yeah.
0: There's less of a sense of sort of automatic omniscience. It's mm-hmm. more like, you know, he gets information
1: from beings that work for him. Right. And so he sends these two angels down to, to scope things out, to do the count. And they visit Abraham's nephew a lot. Now the angels are in disguise, of course, and and this is ultimately um, a trope that you see in a lot of different uh, myths and legends throughout history. The idea that the people that are coming to to pay you visit, or that you're having a chance encounter with, might actually be uh, divine beings in disguise.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, this does show up a lot in the Bible. In fact, it also shows up later in, in Christian mythology with like mm-hmm. uh, the parables of Jesus where he talks about like, you know, the person who you show a kindness to or you shoot you do not show a kindness to might have been me.
1: Right, yeah but but then also there are other tales and other uh, uh, traditions that involve like this a, a mysterious stranger who mm-hmm. turns out to be a powerful being of some sort or the other
0: and as this tale makes clear one of the most important ways of being righteous in the ancient world was showing hospitality actually this is something that i think is underemphasized in a lot of the like morality tales of today you see it hugely important in the mythology and and religion of the ancient world, is like being a
1: good host. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with the story of Lot's wife. Like growing up, I vaguely remember it being brought up in uh, in church from time to time. Mm-hmm. But more more to the point, you would see it in like uh, like chick tracks, yeah, like some sort of um, you know uh, you know cartoon uh, that is. Um, you know, ultimately, kind of like wallowing in awfulness, and but uh, and trying and uh, and using the the, the story to, to spin off a really um, uh, you know, homophobic message.
0: Oh yeah, that's weird. Like I think, especially in the twentieth century, yeah. for some reason, the Sodom and Gomorrah story came to be associated with condemnations of homosexuality, which is not really what the, what the story in the Bible is
1: focused on. Right. Yeah. It, ultimately, this is a story about hospitality, and as it turns out, uh, you know, lots. Uh, Lot and his wife are really the only people that are that show any hospitality to these uh, two angels in disguise. Right. They take the angels in, host them at their house,
0: and then the story turns fairly horrific. <laughs> uh, like a mob shows up outside the house demanding to rape the angels that are staying there with him. And Lot tries to offer up his daughters instead to the mob, and the mob does not acquiesce to this. And then the angels instruct Lot to take his wife and his children and flee the city, because the city is going to be destroyed.
1: Yeah, basically, they're like, look, we're not going to hit our 10 righteous individual quota here, but you two seem all right, so you should clear out. And so they do. They attempt to clear out, to flee the city right as it's about to be smited, and uh, and and but they warn them like, look, you cannot turn around, you cannot look back at the city while it is uh, mid smite, or it's going to be very unpleasant for you. Uh, and so they, they're heading out, they're fleeing the destruction. But then, Lot's wife either she doesn't listen or she can't help herself, but she turns around uh, and looks backward at the, the 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 city as it is destroyed uh, by the divine fire, and then this turns her into a pillar of salt.
0: Yeah, so I want to read this passage from the King James translation. It goes, The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar, and that's like another village that they were fleeing to, a Mm -hmm. small place. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, And she became a pillar of salt. A pillar of salt. This always, uh, this this is the detail that always captivated me the most. It's a strange, it's like an intriguing, sad, tragic story. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really explain her motives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that a lot of people have been able to read back into with like literature about this story. The one main thing that comes to mind for me is the poem by the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova called Lot's Wife. Do you mind if I read this here? Oh, please do. Uh, this is the translation by Stanley Q. Units and Max Hayward. It goes, And the just man trailed God's shining agent over a black mountain in his giant track, while a restless voice kept harrying his woman. It's not too late, you can still look back at the red towers of your native Sodom, the square where once you sang, the spinning shed, at the empty windows set in the tall house where sons and daughters blessed your marriage bed. A single glance, a sudden dart of pain, stitching her eyes before she made a sound, her body flaked into transparent salt, and her swift legs rooted to the ground. Who will grieve for this woman? Does she not seem too insignificant for our concern? Yet in my heart, I'll never deny her, who suffered death because she chose to
1: turn. Oh, that's beautiful and sad and it captures uh, you know ultimately a lot of the feelings one has when you encounter this this passage where yes yeah, she seems to to perish um, you know for the, the the smallest slight you know all she did is glance backward well, yeah, and the
0: what I love about this poem is it emphasizes not the external view of the city as this place of wickedness that must be destroyed, but the view of it as her home. you mm-hmm. know she's looking back to the place where she her home the way that she loved all you know
1: all her good memories are there, yeah, because one of the things uh, it kind of comes back to our discussions about um you know identity and like, what makes a person who they are? Is it internal or is it external? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if a righteous person was able to live in this city, it stands to reason that the place was not, like, otherwise completely, um, you know, exotically evil.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, th- that gives it, obviously, the character of myth. Like, yeah. this doesn't read like a, a historical account because... You cannot plausibly imagine a city in which everybody except one family is just evil to the core.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, that's pure myth spinning, even though that kind of myth spinning still goes on today. Right. Um, as we consider other places and uh, and, and, then, and people from other places, et cetera. Uh, but, of course, this hasn't stopped numerous. Uh, you see a lot of efforts, especially if you're just searching around online, people looking for the historical accuracy of uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, And, you know, in in similar cases from the Old Testament.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's a good thing to note because we're going to be talking about some geomythology in today's episode, possible Mm -hmm. connections between, uh, between mythology and geological facts about the world. But those those connections are always hypothetical. We can just discuss possible ways that, that they line up. But uh, I, I just want to say as a note that when you're reading articles about this kind of thing, you always have to be wary and try to separate out like what are the facts that are being reported versus what are the conclusions you're being invited or even explicitly told to draw from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Because there are just all kinds of reports about archaeological or geological findings from the ancient Levant with headlines like Bible story confirmed, (laughs) you know. Uh, And then actually when you read, okay, well, what are the facts they're talking about? It might be something like, for example – there was a settlement in the Dead Sea region that was depopulated at some point, and therefore this settlement must be the Sodom from the Bible, and it confirms the Bible story is true about the brimstone and the angels and all that,
1: yeah, I feel like reads like this they tend to uh, you know completely discredit the power of mythology, yeah, like it's a, it's it's everything has to be considered as a as as a potential you know one hundred percent historical uh reality y- yeah Where, whereas mythology is this thing that you know resides between objective reality and our perception it is this i mean but it's it's not just mere you know made up stuff like mythology uh, you know it is essentially the skeletal system on which we we build ourselves and our culture
0: well, an important part of culture i think is is conceiving of mythology as perhaps true without being factual yeah. Maybe meaning it somehow contains wisdom but is not like an accurate description of things that happened. Uh, And and the the emphasis on like people – this must be an accurate description of things that happened. First of all, it's such a confused way of looking at archaeology. I I don't think we can even be confident that the people originally telling stories like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife and the Pillar of Salt – meant for the stories to be taken as literal fact maybe
1: they did but i'm i'm not so sure they meant that right because as we've said plenty of times before we don't want to discredit the creative abilities of ancient peoples Mm -hmm. and we also don't want to discredit like things like dreams or certainly uh, in cultures where there was some sort of a a tradition of you know hallucinatory or psychedelic substance use like that could have been a factor as well like there there are There are various ways that one can um, acquire uh, the elements of these stories. And then, of course, you build upon them through uh, the oral tradition. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, even,
0: even if you think about sometimes myths just being stories that people made up, For a reason, the reason might have been something like to convey a point, to explain the origin of something, to emphasize some kind of moral value that you wanted people to take away. Now, this story is kind of a jumble of things that are morally absolutely horrific to us today, but also Mm -hmm. like in there, there is some stuff about that's worth thinking about, about hospitality, about like taking people in and protecting them under your roof. But yeah, so it just gets so weird when we modern people look at like Scientific evidence, and then we say, aha, it confirms the story from mythology is true. Uh, it's like it, it's an impulse that leads to bad reasoning and over interpretation of little bits of physical evidence. But I think it also, most of the time, just completely misses the point of the story.
1: Right. And then you end up kind of like busting your own myth, right? Yeah. You're Kind of like, <laughs> like by, by so, you know, vehemently uh, attempting to uh, connect mythology with objective reality. Like it, it, More often than not, it just it feels fake. It feels like you're trying too hard to make this magical unreality real. And in doing so, you just make it feel like it's just made up stuff.
0: Yeah, totally. Should we take a break and then come back and talk about what kind of myth this might be? Let's do it.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray
2: work.
1: All right, we're back uh, here on this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We are talking about Lot's wife, uh, looking you know for uh, uh, looking at this as a story of geomythology, and later we'll even get into a little bit of chemistry.
0: All right, so there's the question of what kind of myth this is, the idea that Lot's wife turned and looked back at her home and then turned into a pillar of salt. A, a lot of the myths from the ancient Near East, and actually from all over the world, I think can can be interpreted as origin myths, also known as ideological myths. We've talked about this on the show before. But this means that they explain the beginning or the cause of something. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different forms this can take. One of the most common kinds of etiological myths is the myth that explains the name used for something. Ancient people usually didn't have the tools to study etymology and understand the origins of words and names that passed down through the culture. So a lot of etiological myths, I think, are built around false cognates, words that sound similar but aren't actually related. And this would be like if I said, uh, the capital – why is the capital of the United States called Washington? Well, once there was a man who lived there and he washed himself in the Potomac River all the time. He <laughs> washed himself so much that he – that the, they would walk by and they would say, there's old Washington washing himself in a way that never ceases and that's where the town gets its name. Obviously, that would be untrue but that's that's kind of like a name-based ideological myth. Okay. A lot of other ideological myths, I think, explain the origins of cultural practices or rituals. So why do we cut a branch of mistletoe and bring two bulls on the solstice to do this ritual? Well, it's because once the god Thor was standing under some mistletoe and it felt, you know, like – so they, they come up with something that weaves together all of these practices or elements of a ceremony that you don't remember the
1: actual origins of because it's been passed down for generations. Right, and these are the th- these would be the kind of stories that would give uh, your everyday rituals and even just everyday, you know, sort of vaguely ritualized activities meaning mm-hmm. because you are uh, embodying some sort of uh, mythic motif. Right, you're recreating the actions of the gods when you do this thing mm-hmm.
0: now, and so a similar thing happens for natural phenomena and natural objects. Why do we have thunder and lightning? It's because of a storm god throwing angry bolts of lightning or fighting a war in the heavens. Why do we have four seasons and we can't grow crops in the winter? Well, because in the fall and winter, uh, Persephone has to live in Hades and her mother Demeter, the goddess of the harvest, she mourns her absence and won't allow crops to grow. But then in the spring and the summer, Persephone can come up again and Demeter rejoices and nourishes her crops. And there are also versions of these natural etiologies just for objects in the world when and, you you know, there will sometimes be a myth explaining the existence of a mountain or of a giant
1: crater or something like that. Yeah, and we've discussed some of these on the show before, like ideas of, of basically topography being formed from, the say, the bodies of fallen gods and mm-hmm. the like.
0: Yeah. And so could the story of Lot's wife be a myth like this, existing to explain the origin of something? We don't know, but I do think it's possible. And so uh, I want to look at a, a passage— From Josephus, the first-century Jewish historian, Uh, he wrote about the story of Lot's wife in his work known as The Antiquities of the Jews, and this is from Book 1, Chapter 11, translated by William Whiston. And it starts off talking about the wickedness of the people who lived in Sodom, saying that Lot fled the city with his wife and daughters, and then Josephus writes, "'God then cast a thunderbolt upon the city and set it on fire with its inhabitants and laid waste the country with the like burning, as I formerly said when I wrote The Jewish War.'" But Lot's wife continually turning back to view the city as she went from it and being too nicely inquisitive what would become of it, although God had forbidden her so to do, was changed into a pillar of salt. For I have seen it, and it remains at this day.
1: Lot's wife confirmed.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Bible story confirmed. That's Josephus' headline. But, I mean, whoa, that's interesting. So Josephus in the first century CE is saying that he personally saw Lot's wife frozen in time as a pillar of salt hundreds of years after the events of this myth allegedly took place. Now, I think we can assume that Josephus probably wasn't lying about having seen something here, that something that he thought was Lot's wife. But at the same time, I think we can probably safely assume that whatever he saw was not actually a human woman who got turned into sodium chloride. So what could he be talking about?
1: Well, the obvious answer would be if not an actual woman that was turned into salt, something that looks like uh, a a humanoid figure, something that looks like it could be interpreted as such. Right.
0: Uh, We need to start by stipulating again that we don't know. We don't know the answer to this. But if we want to examine some possibilities, we can look at modern analogies. Now, today, there are at least two different things I've found that regularly get called Lot's Wife. And these are strange geological formations or pillars in the area of the Dead Sea. One is an odd-looking rock pillar standing on a cliff top that overlooks the Dead Sea on the Jordan side, which is over on the, the eastern side. And it does have an eerily human posture. It, it looks like uh, some local tourism concerns advertise this as Lot's Wife. And I, I couldn't figure out how long... People have been referring to this particular formation as Lot's wife, but at least today and for some years now... They've been calling it that. And it does look creepy.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear from some of our listeners who have uh, visited the area or reside in the area. Yeah. They can weigh in on uh, you know, just what was your experience looking at this thing that is referred to as Lot's wife.
0: There is a, there's a kind of agony to the posture of the mineral. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it does, it's got some pathos to it. You can see it. I can see, okay, I, I like I get the Akhmatova of a poem almost out of this rock pillar. Another thing that is often called Lot's Wife is a geological formation on the opposite side of the Dead Sea, on the uh, west side, on a hilltop now known as Mount Sodom. This formation, also called Lot's Wife, is kind of funny when you actually see people approach it. Like I watched a video of some tourists just taking video of themselves Mm -hmm. going up to see Lot's Wife. And uh, this one is funny because it's less suggestive of human posture and and shape than the formation on the Jordan side – and because it's gigantic. If it were Lot's wife, Lot's wife was huge.
1: <laughs> and I should also point out that, like, sub- subsequent uh, geologic formations in other parts of the world have been dubbed Lot's wife mm. merely because they sort of vaguely resemble a humanoid form. Right. And uh, I think arguably that's, I mean, that's what's happening in all of these cases. Yeah. It's like it kind of looks like a person. And then we have this myth of a person having turned to uh, salt or to some you know, stone like substance, and that is like the natural thing to call it. Right.
0: Now, Mount Sodom is interesting because it is actually almost entirely made of salt. It's like more than 80% salt with a few layers of other strata. It's got things like limestone, and it hosts a gigantic salt cave that is miles long. But there is no evidence whatsoever that either of these formations were once a human. They, they appear to be fairly normal mineral columns. But one could pretty easily imagine one of two scenarios – You've either got the myth already existing independently, and somebody who had both read the story and seen the geological features put two and two together, and then people like Josephus come along and hear from those people and say, "Look, this is Lot's wife," and why would you question it?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the whole mermaid scenario. Did you know? To what extent does someone see a manatee and think, "Oh, it's a mermaid," or associate with a mermaid's tail, uh, the tail of the mermaid, or is it the the, the, re- the reverse? Right where someone sees manatees and to make sense of it, they create a story of mermaids.
0: Exactly. And that second part is the other option I was going to say, the the actual geomythology inspiration. Mm-hmm. Maybe some tribe in the ancient Dead Sea region was aware of ge- either one of these geological formations or another one like it that doesn't exist anymore, that is not identified the same way now, maybe eroded. But anyway, they were aware of some kind of geological formation that looks kind of like a human. And then a great storyteller comes along to come up with a tale of how that person
1: was crystallized in place there and that's why you're always uh, hospitable to uh, to visitors
0: well you know mythologies are interesting that way because they're often a they're often a woven together tapestry of pre-existing streams of storytelling tradition mm-hmm. i can Absolutely see the possibility of how like a story that was once about, you know, showing hospitality to agents of the Lord or just showing hospitality in general got woven together with like somebody just stuck an ideological myth into part of it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean we even see this, of course, with the evolution of of modern tales that are told, you know, where there'll be one version of it. Like, just look at our comic book characters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the evolution of, of some of them from uh, characters of pure exploitation – Two characters that are being used to, you know, discuss some sort of, uh, uh, you know, socially relevant topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, stories evolve. That's that's the, the essential to the human experience. And, of course, we see that in mythology as well. Uh, you know, we always have to remember that, that myths, it, even though they are often encountered in some stationary form, recorded in a, a book that is at least presented to you as if it has not changed over the course of millennia, uh, it, it is still a thing that is – the story itself is something that is fluid, and will have changed through time and through tellings.
0: Yes, and as for a single ideological element being inserted into a story that already exists, you can see that in storytelling today. Think about how common it is For there to be like a historical story, think the Forrest Gump, okay, Mm -hmm. movie Forrest Gump. How many things are there in that story where you could have the story be pretty much exactly the same without it, except they inserted a little thing where like Forrest Gump invented the have a nice day slogan, you know, on the (laughs) t-shirt with the smiley face. Or there were a bunch of things like that in the movie where they just insert a little fake ideology to say, oh, and by the way, remember this thing from history? Forrest Gump did that.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I forgot about that. The mythmaking of Forrest Gump.
0: I don't know why people like things like that so much, but they clearly do because it's in a lot of stories and movies to just have a little thing that people recognize from the real world and say, "Hey, this fictional character—they're actually the reason that's that way."
1: I feel like stuff is there've been films that do that with the Leaning Tower of, of uh, Pisa, right? Oh yeah, yeah, where yeah. Uh, where a character bumps into it and it makes it uh, crooked, uh, you know, or something to that to that effect. Yeah, totally. It was a Superman movie. It's been a while since. Maybe Superman like fixes it. Oh, he or fixes it, it and it makes people mad. Yeah. Why is it always that in
0: Superman movies, Superman is protecting monuments from destruction? <laughs> I remember that especially being the case in Superman four, hmm. where like great monuments are under attack by the villains and Superman has to prevent them from being destroyed.
1: Right. Yeah. It should be the, the people that matter, right? Yeah.
0: But anyway, I wanted to say something else about possible geological explanations for mythology like this. Uh, another thing has to do with salt formations around high salinity bodies of water.
1: And there of course, is a famously salty body of water in the, the vicinity here.
0: Yeah, that's right. The, the Dead Sea of course, which is not, which is not an ocean, by the way. The Dead Sea is a, is a hyper saline lake. It is like a super salty locked up lake. The water of the Dead Sea is fascinating. It is so salty that no large life forms dwell there. No fish. No, uh, no, no insects live in there. No plants live in there. There are some microorganisms, I think, that live around vents and stuff near the bottom of it.
1: Right. And then in certain areas, uh, you will find a human tourists floating in it. Right. Uh, and that's <laughs> rather what, easily.
0: Yes. That's one of the fascinating things about the water there because it's so saline. I guess the density of the water is so much higher than normal. They say it's almost like you can just sit on the water. You know, it's really hard to sink. You float so easily. Uh, most ocean water is about 3.5% salt in solution. The Dead Sea is something like five to ten times as briny
1: as normal ocean water. Yeah, yeah, we're talking super salty. Like uh, you know, the kind of you know, similar salinity, of course, one encounters in uh, saltwater um, uh, isolation tanks. Uh, float mm. tanks, you know, where you're mm. you're floating in a, just a, this highly salty uh, water that almost takes on this like viscous consist- consistency. Ew. yeah, it's a little <laughs> gross for well, the first time you get it. Takes some getting used to. Well, you might wonder why
0: is the Dead Sea so salty? The answer is that the Dead Sea does not have a natural outlet. There's nowhere for the water of the Dead Sea to drain out to, uh, and part of the reason for this is that the bottom of the Dead Sea is more than fourteen hundred feet below sea level. Uh, And the basin it sits in is just generally one of the lowest elevations of any uh, land area on Earth. Depending on where you're measuring, it is sometimes cited as the lowest land elevation on the planet. So if you're at the lowest elevation, where could the water drain to if there's nothing downhill from it, Mm -hmm. right? So while it doesn't have a natural outlet, it does have a natural source, which is the Jordan River. So the Jordan River feeds into the Dead Sea. Occasionally, of course, as you know, fresh water comes through, it has tiny amounts of dissolved salt and, and mineral stuff that it carries with it. And The water in the Dead Sea just stays there, doesn't drain away. It stays there until it evaporates. But of course, this is an extremely hot and dry desert climate, so evaporation is extremely aggressive. But that evaporation removes water without removing the salt – and then with anthropogenic changes to the flow of the Jordan River, the Dead Sea now gets less water fed into it ever than ever before, and it's shrinking rapidly. I've read that the water level has been falling at a rate of something like three feet or about a meter a year, which is fast. But with this much salt dissolved in the water— the water can leave deposits of crystallized salt around its edges. In fact, if you walk around the shores of the Dead Sea, you will find strange sparkling domes and piles of salt crystals collecting on rocks due to wave action
1: and evaporation. Yeah, and many of these are just, yeah, they are really alien to behold. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, strange-looking formations, which makes one think, well, perhaps some formation like this could have caught the eye of someone in the past and either it would have been exactly the sort of thing you would incorporate into a myth or would serve to spin off a new myth. Exactly, yeah. So
0: salt crystals like these, they can take on extremely bizarre shapes. Sometimes they crystallize over a a vertical rock column or maybe over an old tree trunk or a post driven into the ground or something. Anything that has a sort of vertical form, you can see how pretty easily heavy crystallization of salt on the outside of it could start to take on human-looking form. And there's also, I would just say, something about the the nature and shapes of salt crystals that naturally draws the eye. Like, it looks mm-hmm. unusual in the landscape. It looks kind of alive. Uh, some of the... The salt crystals can form these large cubes and stuff. Yeah. They take on angles that don't look natural.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a geometric quality to it. Yeah, uh, that that, is, that generally seems out of keeping with the surrounding environment.
0: So what was Josephus looking at when he said he saw Lot's wife in person? Well, we don't know for sure. And we don't know if whatever he saw was actually the inspiration for the story in the first place. But if it were, I think it would be in keeping with many other ideological tales in the Bible and in human mythology.
1: Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we should take one more break. And when we come back... Let's talk a little bit about uh, salt, salt in the human body, and a really fabulous paper that we ran across <laughs> that uh, really breaks down how an Old Testament woman could be transformed into a pillar of salt or a salt-like substance. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is
0: here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential
2: work. Zumo play.
1: All right, we're back. So one way that I would often th- that I would often think about this story as I, as I would think, okay, uh, a, a person being turned in, into just salt that doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, because salt <laughs> right. salt is of is of course you know is, is salt comes from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you replace all of us with salt? Certainly, our bodies contain salt. How much salt does our body does our body do our bodies contain? well let's 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 break down uh, this a little bit so first of all, salt is obviously sodium and chlorine mm-hmm. and we need sodium uh, for example as a it's a key extracellular electrolyte and it's crucial to a number of health functions right uh, now for the for the most part we consume way too much salt today uh, the the minimum uh, consumption is roughly i've read uh, uh, 1,500 uh, milligrams a day while the American Heart Association says the absolute minimum is more like 500 milligrams a day and the average American consumes something like uh, 3,400 milligrams of sodium per day. Those are amateur numbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now also according to the Salt Association chlorine is also important uh, preserving acid balance in the body aiding potassium absorption. It also contributes to the hydrochloric acid in our gut and it enhances the blood's ability to transport carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all of this breaks down to like it is a rough average. An adult human body contains 250 grams of salt uh, and any excess is naturally excreted by the body. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about excretion of excess salt in a past episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Um, where we discussed uh, drinking salt water. Uh, So I I recommend that one to to anyone uh, who would like even more salt after this episode. Right. So if Lot's wife, uh, you know, wasn't so much turned into a pillar of salt, if we were going to say, okay, what if the magic rays of the, the the city smiting taking place what if it just reduced her to her body salt content you know oh, okay like just you know a holy ray that, de- that destroys everything except salt how much salt would be left it would be uh, you know about 250 grams of salt that's roughly what 1.24 cups what we got a cup and a quarter of salt in our bodies well i mean it's impressive when you think about it you know in those terms i guess but in terms of like a person being reduced to that uh-huh. uh you know it's It's not not really a pillar of salt. They would have to say, and then she turned back and was reduced to a small amount of salt.
0: Man, I love thinking about the stuff in human bodies in measuring quantities used for cooking.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because uh, (laughs) according to Harvard Health, that's less than nine ounces and about the amount in three or four salt shakers. Wait, do the salt shakers have little bits of dry rice in them? Um, I don't know if it's necessary in such an, an arid environment. So that, that's one place my mind went in terms of trying to figure out what's what's happening. Now, obviously, your mind also turns to, of course, fossilization. Like fossilization right. is a very real process by which a living body is turned into a, a solid mineral form. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's not going to occur in an instant. It's something that takes place over the, the course of geologic time. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, uh, I'm thinking. Okay, essentially, what we're talking about is or, or, or a, a pair of nuclear blasts taking place that have been, uh, you know, unleashed by angelic forces. Well, okay, might might that f- the might the, the flash of this, might the, the radiation from this, have incinerated the body and you know reduced it to ash? Well, I, I, you know, that's one way of looking at it, but it wouldn't produce like a ca- like a statue of ash. It would just obliterate a body if it was turning it to ash. And then, of course, uh, one thinks to mummies, uh, but of course, mummies are you know are just uh, examples of body that has been in which the uh, the fluid has been removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and likewise, there are a number of different uh, you know preservation um, uh, models for the human body where you're uh, you know you're adding something or replacing something. Mm-hmm. But none of these are processes that are going to take place in an instant.
0: There, there are forms of natural mummification that mm-hmm. took place. Uh, we often think that natural mummification in some cultures preceded uh, deliberate mummification. But you wouldn't normally think of that as like something that somebody would look at and see a mummy and say they turned to salt. Now you could, you could play a kind of crazy jigsaw of different natural effects if anything goes, right? Mm-hmm. What if there was some kind of natural mummy of a woman in the Dead Sea region that suddenly like because, I don't know, a storm or something blew all this salt crystal on her, and then it covered her body in salt, and she glistened all over, and people said, look, there's the salt woman.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know. Yeah, it's one of those where it's ultimately a lot of steps are required to get to the place you want to go. Right. So, uh, I kept looking around about this, and I'm like, somebody's out there, there has to have been a scientist, a pure scientist, right. who decided to tackle this as kind of a thought experiment.
0: One of these great uh, playful chemistry papers, like, the
1: uh, like, what are the thermodynamics of hell, and all that. Right, or uh, one of, another favorite that I have more. Of a biology paper is um, like how would a centaur's body work? I remember uh-huh. running across that one where the the, the the authors argued that a centaur would require two hearts in order to power this you know conjoined um, uh, uh, system. Uh, so I I was lucky enough to find uh, just such a paper on Lot's wife uh, titled. The Chemical Death of Lot's Wife (laughs) discussion paper. (laughs) This was published in the Journal of of the Royal Society of Medicine in July of 1988. And it was by Irving M. Klotz, PhD, Department of Chemistry, Northwestern University. Uh, and, and I want to note here that, that Klotz was not some, like, weird quack writing a bunch of, like, biblical papers, uh, you know, which I think should be obvious given the details of not only, uh, you know, uh, his his employment uh, but also the publication But I I should stress that uh, during his lifetime, he authored more than 200 scientific articles and peer-reviewed journals. And he also wrote numerous books, including one titled Diamond Dealers and Feather Merchants, Tales from the Sciences, which (laughs) sounds uh, sounds quite good. I may have to uh, hunt up a copy of it. Uh, So anyway, he's... I feel like he's very much engaging on a thought experiment here, uh, but his uh, his science cred is is ultimately above reproach.
0: Okay, but so he's going to take this from a like biochemistry point of view and say,
1: all right, if a person was turned into salt, how would that work? What would that mean? Exactly. So, first of all, he reminds us that we shouldn't take salt too literally. Uh, Rather, he says it's likely, uh, you know, used in a generic sense to refer to any solid uh, with mineral characteristics to it and perhaps a salt-like taste. So he's not necessarily
0: talking about sodium chloride, but he says that in the Bible, if they said salt, they probably meant just any kind of crystalline mineral. A lot of things taste vaguely salty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he uses the point of comparison to the way the Bible uses the word plague to refer to basically anything, you know, anything that's like an epidemic.
1: So he writes, quote, a particularly likely candidate for the salt that caused the death of Ms. Lott is calcite. This mineral is very susceptible to a precipitation in the presence of low concentrations of free calcium and carbonate. Both of which are present ubiquitously in all human tissues. And there, he's talking about calcium ions. Yes, and carbonate ions. So, what must have happened? Uh, he argues, is something something occurred to overwhelm the uh, homeostatic systems that maintain calcium and carbonate levels below critical values, thus leading to the onset of calcite formation. Uh, and this would have been due to some sort of, sort of you know catastrophic stress. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what could could have caused this to happen? Well, Klotz looks to the, the text and considers that they were running from a powerful firestorm radiating outward from the from the site of destruction. And that as she stops and looks back, perhaps she's then hit by a powerful blast of hot air with high CO2 content along with heat and radiation.
0: So it would be the, the hot air coming in with the pressure and the CO2 content, the chemical properties of the CO2 content mm-hmm. uh, and how that would affect the pH of the blood in the body and then the heat and radiation. Now, I think I understand from his analysis that that it doesn't actually matter that she's looking back at the city. He's saying, like, maybe it's just that she stopped running away. Right, it's it, more that
1: she stopped and looked back or right. perhaps kept stopping and looking back. So, you right. know, uh, it's not about, like, your eyes beholding the thing.
0: Right, so it's not the Josephus issue. Remember, Josephus says the problem is that she thought too kindly of, of Sodom. Right. <laughs> and uh, that she should have been, I guess, colder in her uh, in her condemnation of it.
1: Right, this is basically, yeah, this Klotz's argument is she's still in the dangers zone from right. this uh, terrific blast that's taking place. Okay. So Klotz goes on from here uh, to do a lot of chemical analysis on how all this would break down. And I'm not going to attempt to summarize that here. Uh, if you're if you're uh, more of a chemistry whiz, uh, I suggest looking up this paper. It's available <laughs> for free online in a PDF form. Uh, but I am going to skip ahead to his final summary. Quote Thus, by turning around in her direction of flight, Miss Lott exposed herself instantly to stresses that generated immediate, enormous escalations in concentrations of calcium and carbonate so that the critical limits specified by equation six, which was uh, something he, um, uh, he covered earlier in the paper, were exceeded overwhelmingly and instantaneously. Internal, massive, pervasive crystallization of calcite followed immediately, Miss Lott died instantly of rigor calcium carbonatus and turned into a rigid block of calcite. Since the prevailing winds from the Dead Sea always carry along a spray of salt, which is accumulated on this pillar, succeeding generations to modern times have testified that this column is a block of salt.
0: Okay. So he, he lays out a process by which in the presence of, of certain chemical pressures and you know, high pressure and temperature from this blast the body could conceivably undergo rapid crystallization of its calcium content. Because like the 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 some of the calcium-containing compounds in the body, like the albumin he refers mm-hmm. to, like those get denatured, the cal- calcium gets freed, it joins up with the carbonate, you get rapid crystallization, and you get a calcite body. It's pretty creepy.
1: Yeah, it is. It's tremendously
0: creepy. Uh- I, I don't know if he makes the case really that this— could happen in reality. One thing I wasn't quite clear on was whether he's just saying, like, okay, what's the most plausible possible like chain of of chemical uh, things here leading to the crystallization of the body like this, or if he's actually saying, oh yeah, given the right circumstances, this could happen to a human body.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's a playful article, I feel, but it's not. It doesn't have an obvious like wink moment. It, you, know, ah. it's, it's very, um, you know, it's it's very, you know, it's it's very professional in its delivery. I feel like modern. <laughs> Papers of this uh this variety would tend to have a few more winks uh toward the fact that it is a thought experiment, if not outright saying here's a thought experiment uh, and he's a little more i guess in a sense he's a little more playful uh with how he's framing it okay but uh but yeah, I love this uh this idea of the the chemical death of Miss Lot and he always refers to her as Miss Lott uh, <laughs> instead of just lott's wife uh, in the paper, yeah, so uh you know again not. Uh, not a situation where uh where this uh, paper is confirming uh, a biblical account bible story confirmed <laughs> rapid <laughs> but, crystallization of calcite in the blood but but it is uh, it is another one of the examples of like what's a what's a completely outrageous scenario from uh, you know from from myth and then and then trying to sort of recreate it to reverse engineer it using science. And it's it's fascinating how sometimes you can you can just recreate how something like that could occur. And it makes me want to see more like calcite death rays in our uh, science fiction. This has been interesting, Robert. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a lot of fun uh, uh, researching and reading about uh, Lot's wife. Uh, I'm also reminded how in um, R. Scott Baker's uh, Second Apocalypse Saga, he has a bit about uh, uh, wizards that come into contact with a particular um, uh, substance it causes their bodies to essentially turn into a pillar of salt. Hmm. Um, And then it's... uh it's hinted that that salt can then be used for uh, for other purposes. Oh. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll leave uh, leave that out there for anyone who wants to explore those books on their own. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find them. Uh, and if you want to support our show, the best thing you can do is make sure you have subscribed. Also, rate and review wherever you have the power to do so. And don't forget about Invention. That's our other show. comes out once a week, and it is a continuous examination of human techno history.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.